You're listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. Today's reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18, beginning in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great! She has become a dwelling place for demons! A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment, and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Then a mighty angel, sorry, this is in verse 21 now, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. 
and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is the true word of the Lord. Well, that didn't happen, clearly. It's May 22nd, and uh, we're still here. As you know, uh, Harold Camping predicted that the world would end yesterday. If you paid attention at all to how that all went down, it should have made you a little bit skeptical because it was all based on some real complex math that apparently he was the only guy that sort of did the calculations right. And anytime you have someone talking about the end of the world or biblical prophecy and judgment, and it requires their math to make it work out right, you should be a little skeptical. As a matter of fact, everything you really need to know about eschatology, you learned in kindergarten. The profound truth of theology was taught to you in nursery rhymes and fairy tales. It came to you in the rubric of once upon a time. Because you see, what, what fairy tales taught you was the skill of seeing through things. Uh, the skill of seeing below the surface of things. Because not everything is what it seems, right? Uh, what looks like a beast may in fact be a handsome prince. Uh, what looks like an elegant queen may in fact be a jealous stepmother. Uh, but then you grew up, right? And you learned that while evil stepmothers do in fact exist... Fairy godmothers don't. And beasts certainly don't turn into handsome princes. And a kiss, even a really romantic one, can't bring a dead person back to life. And so you moved on from the world of fairy tales to the world, the world of science and math and logic. Uh, but you see, what you left behind in that move was actually more than you bargained for. Because we read fairy tales to our kids not just to engage their imagination, but to teach them the crucial skill of discernment. In fairy tale land, you've got to pay attention, right? Because that delicious looking apple might in fact be poisoned by the jealous stepmother. And in the real world, that same thing is true. That charming boy in high school may in fact be a sexual predator. That smooth-talking salesman may in fact be a con artist. You need the skills and the discernment you learned in kindergarten in order to make it in the real world. And you also need that discernment in order to be a wise Christian. Because you see, the whole story of the kingdom of God is that things are not what they seem. All that glitters is not gold. 
what looks like a pleasing piece of fruit is in fact a scheme to plunge all of the created world into ruin. What looks like a humble peasant baby in meager circumstances is in fact God in human form. What looks like a gruesome Roman execution is in fact the redemption of all the world. People who lack that ability to see below the surface of things, we call gullible, naive. Uh, They're the kind of people who can't perceive and discern the truth. It's not an admirable quality to have. In fact, the book of Proverbs chides the simple man for his lack of discernment. The naive believes everything, Proverbs says. And likewise, the book of Revelation chides us, the church, for our lack of discernment. Because you see, we have taken the bait. We have fallen for the ruse. The seductive, alluring woman we know as prosperity and affluence is in fact a vile, drunken prostitute. And those who are wise, those who are godly, will see her for what she truly is and resist her seduction. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, John says in chapter 17. Uh, This beast is full of blasphemous names. It has seven heads and ten horns. We've seen this character before, haven't we? Uh, We saw this beast in chapter 13 of Revelation. And and the beast, we said, represents kingdoms, kings, empires, rulers. Uh, The beast is an image for all the human institutions and structures we refer to as the state. And this woman whom John sees is sitting on the beast. In other words, they are allied with one another. They are on the same team. They are part of the same deception. She is the state's mistress, you might say. And we read that she is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And she holds in her hands a golden cup. Now, this description of luxury along with similar ones that follow in chapter 18, uh, clue us in that this woman represents human culture, the world as we know it, in terms of material wealth, the prosperity and comfort that it brings. The woman, the, the prostitute Babylon in these chapters of Revelation is affluence, prosperity, comfort, All the wealth and riches that the world offers us and that come to us as a result of being part of the world and its empires. Great states, great kingdoms, great empires bring with them material prosperity, right? And and prosperity exerts a different kind of influence over us, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, 
kingdoms or states really have two kinds of power at their disposal. There is the coercive power of brute force. Right? The state is able to leverage military strength, political power, legislation. It it can sort of will you into submission with brute force. But then in its economic impact, it wields a different kind of power, doesn't it? A more seductive and alluring sort of power. See, when the state wields coercive power, when it leads by brute force... We generally recognize that for what it is. Right, so a few weeks ago, uh, I told of a Chinese house church that was shut down by the government, its elders cap- taken captive and put into jail. And I think when we see things like that happen, we go, oh, it- it's clear to us what's going on there, right? There is persecution taking place. There is a government sort of exercising force to dominate the church. That's easy to spot, it's easy to see, it's easy to pay attention to. But see, the power of affluence is different, isn't it? It's it's seductive. It doesn't demand our allegiance by brute force. Rather, it, it tempts us. It lures us. It beckons us into subtle compromises that dull our spiritual sensitivity and that turn our affections away from the one true God. And so what John, the writer of Revelation, wants you to see this morning is that Babylon the Great is falling. That the allure of affluence and prosperity is a sham. That this beautiful seductress is really a drunken whore. His language is strong. His images are weighty. Because of our tendency to be seduced. I mean, look how, look at the images that John uses to describe our dallying with sort of the affluence of the world. In chapter 17, verse 2, he says, or rather this angel who comes to him says, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And then in chapter 18, verse 3, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The metaphors John is working in these chapters are the metaphors of drunkenness and adultery. Strong metaphors. I want you to think about the impact of these metaphors. What John is essentially saying, first of all, is, hey, you've become intoxicated. You're not in your right mind. You've drunk away your ability to think clearly, your good judgment, your ability to see things for what they really are. Your judgment is impaired. You are under the influence, so to speak. And so there's a need for you to sober up. There's a need for you to sleep it off. There's a need for you to come back to your senses, to have your spiritual eyes sharpened. 
And likewise, he says, look, what's happened as a result of your intoxication with the world is that you're on the path to adultery. You're being seduced by one who is not your spouse. You're being pulled away from faithfulness to the one who really deserves your faithfulness. Adultery in the Bible is always used as a primary metaphor for God's relationship with His people. In fact, throughout Scripture, when God wants to get our attention, when He wants us to see the influence of idolatry, He often speaks in terms of adultery. He says, I've married you, you're my bride, and yet you've become unfaithful. And you've, In, in Ezekiel, He says, you, you've gone whoring after other gods. There's this stark language of immorality, adultery, that God uses to wake us up and help us see spiritual unfaithfulness. Unfaithful worship. Idolatrous worship. And so John says, look, here's what's happened. You've become intoxicated and you're being seduced. You're being led astray, led away. How does this seduction take place, spiritually speaking? I mean, assuming that John is after something more than just a physical, tangible metaphor here, assuming that he's speaking of something more profound, how how is it that this seduction takes place? How do our affections get pulled away from the one true God and get diverted in other directions? I think we can learn something about the seductive power of our culture, and especially of affluence and prosperity, by paying attention to Proverbs chapter 9. The book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's a a wise, older man speaking to a younger, naive man and imparting wisdom about life. And in chapter 9, there's this extended analogy of between this comparison between Lady Wisdom, who is the virtuous woman, the, the, the virtuous, honorable, desirable woman, and she's contrasted with Lady Folly, who is seductive and brash and spoken of as an adulteress. And, and this father figure is painting this picture for this younger, more naive man and helping him see the difference. And I want you to look with me at Proverbs chapter 9 and how the woman folly is described. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive. To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. He said, notice, She is seductive. And I want you to notice the way her seduction plays out. It begins with a a statement of truth. True need. You are thirsty. You need water. And you are hungry. You need food. It seems that there are some legitimate needs that you have. And I think we can assume Sort of a double entendre here. Sort of a a play on words, a mixing of metaphors. Oh, hey, you're thirsty. 
Well, don't you know that stolen water is really delicious? Oh, I see that you're hungry. Bread eaten in secret is, is the best kind. See, she begins with a true need. And then what she does is propose that illicit ways of fulfilling that need are the most desirable. That they're better than obedient ways, honorable ways of fulfilling that need. Starts with true need, proposes a false solution, and with the implication that it is more desirable, it's better. This is the nature of seduction in the true physical sense, isn't it? And this is also the nature of spiritual seduction. This is how it works. So, so think about how it applies. Think about your drive here this morning. How many billboards did you pass? I don't know where you came from. Maybe you came from just down the street. And the answer is zero, right? But if you came from somewhere else in the city, my guess is you drove past a lot of billboards. And in fact, some of them, uh, you're so immune to their presence that you don't even pay attention. But every one of those advertisements, everything that's posted on a billboard for you to see as you come here and as you go home, all of those advertisements are appealing to, they're starting from true need, right? Their basic narrative is, hey, you are incomplete. You have lack. You have need. Which is true, isn't it? We live in a fallen world. We are not complete beings. We have true needs. So every advertisement is starting by holding up for us. Hey, look, you're you're in need. You lack something. Yes, true. And then those advertisers are all proposing some solution to minimize that need, to minimize the brokenness of life. They're essentially saying, hey, Granted that you have needs, wouldn't your life in this broken world be a little bit more bearable if only you had X? Uh, Do you see that the stories, the narrative your culture is telling you in its advertising is simply a parasite of the true gospel? Do you see that it's just it's doing exactly what woman folly is in Proverbs 9, starting with a true need and proposing now a false solution that is desirable, seems ideal. In fact, to help you see this more clearly, let's just do a little exercise in cultural analysis, shall we? Let's, let's take an actual cultural artifact, an actual advertisement, and let's analyze the narrative the story that it's telling. The advertisement I have in mind is one that I think has been broadcast broadly enough that most of you, whatever your sort of TV viewing habits are, have probably seen it or are aware of it at least. And it's actually a series of advertisements. The ones I have in mind are the State Farm commercials. Are you familiar with this where someone has an auto accident or they've experienced some kind of property damage and they sing the little jingle Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Boom! State Farm agent appears, proceeds to rectify a situation. Right? And, and these, 
These advertisements, there's been a number of them, and they're very creative, and they sort of tap this sort of need for humor that we have, and, and they're well done. And so in a sense, they sort of make us laugh. But, but I want you to examine the, the baseline narrative of that advertisement. I mean, just track with me here. A person in a situation of need, a person the act, experiencing the actual brokenness of life, right? My car has just been wrecked. My house has just been damaged. I was eating a cheeseburger with my slacker buddy and a bear tried to knock over our car, right? I mean, whatever the need is, there's a situation of need. There's an experience of brokenness. And, and what do the characters do? They sing a psalm of deliverance. And as a result of that cry for help, that song of deliverance, a state farm agent incarnates into their reality from outside and proceeds to fix and redeem their situation so that it's better. I mean, are you catching the narrative? It's the narrative of the gospel. You just probably didn't think of it until now. The story that commercial is telling is the story of the gospel. So why do we need Jesus as long as we have State Farm? Right? I mean, now listen, you might not, you might think that's a little far, right? Okay, seriously, I, I, there's one thing I think State Farm knows they can't insure for, and that is hell. Okay, so, Let's, let's admit that though they can insure us against lots of damage, eternal torment is not one of them, and so Jesus still gets that category, right? That's probably what most of you are thinking. And I just want you to see, what we've done essentially is to say, I still need Jesus to secure my eternal afterlife. But right now, I don't need a savior, I don't need redemption because my culture offers me all kinds of false saviors that essentially do the work that Jesus does in more practical and tangible ways. What your culture is preaching to you is essentially, listen, you can save yourself. You can prop yourself up with enough affluence and comfort and security and insurance and insulation from brokenness that you don't actually feel the effects of the fall. And so at the end of the day, though you may still believe you need Jesus for eternal salvation, he is unnecessary for your life now because you don't feel a need for him in any area. You have surrounded yourself with the comforts of affluence so that the brokenness of the world cannot touch you. And so your your experience of brokenness is so muted that you don't long for Jesus. You don't long for the kingdom of God. You don't long for his coming again. This is exactly why in scripture, Jesus always says, it is the poor who are closest to the kingdom of God. Have you ever stepped back to ask why he would say that? Because theologically we know poor people are not more righteous than rich people. All of us are equally wicked. All of us are equally fallen. All of us have equal access to the gospel that God has made possible in Christ. So how is it that the poor are closer to the kingdom of heaven than the rich? The answer is because poor people 
because they feel and know the effects of brokenness every day, are more likely to sense their need for a Savior. Whereas rich people who do not feel the effects of brokenness nearly as deeply have a hard time believing that they need redemption. If you wake up hungry every morning and you go to bed hungry every night, you actually do believe that this world is not the greatest place to be. You actually do believe that there's got to be something better, that there's got to be a, a God who will make things right. You live in a reality of brokenness every day. But see, if you've surrounded yourself with comfort and affluence and wealth, such that the, the most clear experience of brokenness you have is infrequent, it's hard for you to see a need to be saved from anything. And so notice the call from the heavenly sanctuary that John issues to us in in, uh, Revelation 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. See, this is a call to discernment. It's a call to resistance. It's a call to separateness. It's saying, realize that unless you can see that the emperor has no clothes, you're going to miss it. Recognize that the siren song that your culture is preaching to you is not true. Come out from her and be separate. Another way of saying what John is saying would be to say that we are to live as God's people as a counterculture within the culture. In other words, our call is not to isolate ourselves from culture because none of us can avoid culture. We live in the world. We are products of our culture. We are not to isolate and try to get away from culture. What we are to do is to live as a counterculture within the culture. In other words, God's people play by different rules. We live by a different set of values. We show allegiance to a different king and a different kingdom. We're married to a different spouse. And so we live differently in the midst of a broken and fallen world. In in sort of the vision language of Coram Deo, we, we talk about this in terms of Living out the gospel. Because our conviction is from scripture that the gospel, again, is not something just about the afterlife. And it is not a message that's just for your own personal salvation. But rather that the gospel changes everything. That when you really understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you are changed and you are different. And as Dusty said at the beginning of our gathering, you, you, you have a different identity and that, that plays itself out in every aspect of your life. And so we live out, we put on display the gospel, not just in how we speak, but in how we live and what we actually do with our real and actual lives. And so I I thought it might be helpful in, in light of the message of God to us in Revelation 17 and 18. I thought it might be helpful just to talk about what does it mean to live out the gospel 
in an affluent culture? How exactly can we do this? Because I think you would have to agree, wouldn't you, that if Revelation 17 and 18 are written to anyone, they're written to us. We live in what is arguably the most affluent and prosperous culture that has ever existed on the face of the earth. We have more wealth than almost anyone who has lived in all of time and history. And so if anyone needs to learn how do we live by gospel values in the midst of an affluent, a decadent culture, we need to know. And so let me suggest four very practical things. Let's just put feet to this. What is John saying? How do we actually get after this? Uh, Four ways of living out the gospel in an affluent culture. Uh, Here's the first one. Live below your means. You realize that's countercultural, right? If you spend less than you make, you are already in a strange class of people. Our government doesn't even do that, right? Our entire economy is built on debt. Spend more than you make and borrow it from someone else. And so listen, the first way we live as a counterculture is just to live within our means. Now look, there's a variety of different means in the room this morning. Some of you have been entrusted with much, some of you not so much. doesn't matter what means you have, what matters is live within that. God says to us in 1 Timothy 6, if we have food and clothing, with that we should be content. I mean, really, like, what do you, you know what you need? Very little, really. Food, clothing, roof over your head. See, the, the gospel calls us to contentment. Calls us to living a life that is content with what we have and that honors the fact that there are boundaries that we can't go past because they're unwise. A proverb says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you're living beyond your means, if you're spending more than you take in, if you have consumer debt, you need to recognize you're living unwisely. And not just unwisely, you're, you're living in, in a way that preaches a false gospel. Right? The fruit of the gospel in your life should be simplicity, generosity, contentment. That, that's the virtue the gospel produces. And so if your credit card bill says discontentment, what are you preaching? Not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number one, live below your means. Here's the second one. Don't be seduced by newness. You realize, right, that our entire culture of advertising thrives on newness. It's not that the thing you have is broke or has stopped working. It's just that it's old and you need a new one, right? And so a lot of sales is persuading you that what you have is outdated, it's obsolete, and you need to update it. But listen to me, you know the virtue that works against? It works against the virtue of stewardship. You know what a good steward is? A steward is a, per, a good steward is a person who makes the most of what they have and makes it last a long time because they take good care of it. Right? It, the culture of newness, the, idol, the idolizing of what's new works against a culture of stewardship that says, man, I want to I do the best I can with what I've been given. 
So some of you guys haven't changed your oil in 20,000 miles. Because you figure, if this car breaks, I'll just go buy a new one. I'm going to drive it till it dies. Hey, listen, if you change the oil, it will last a really long time. And you can be a good steward of what you have. Don't be seduced by newness, by the cult of the newest, latest, and hippest. Here's the third way of living out the gospel in affluent culture. Question the assumptions of capitalism. Here's what I mean. The economic system we live in in our culture operates on all kinds of assumptions. And here's what most Christians do. Once again, I need Jesus for my eternal salvation, but Jesus does not get to critique the assumptions of my actual life. Listen to me. If the gospel is true and if God is the creator, then God gets to critique your assumptions in every area, including the economic system you're a part of. So let me give an example of what I mean here. How many of you, by show of hands, how many of you have you know, some kind of way that you're saving for retirement? 401k, IRA, 403b, whatever. Let me see your hand. Don't worry, I'm not going to make fun of you. It's okay. All right? So lots of you have some way in which you are trying to save and plan for retirement. And listen, Proverbs says, saving is good, right? Storing up for the future is wise. But here's my question. Have you ever asked whether retirement itself is even biblical? Like, is there such thing as retirement in the Bible? Or is that something your capitalist culture told you? You're uncomfortable with that, aren't you? Ooh, that is odd. But listen, I'm not, listen to me, hear, hear me. I'm not saying it's evil and wrong to retire. I'm saying you should question the assumptions that your culture is telling you. So I'll give you an example. I sat down a few years ago to prepare, to, sort, to meet with my financial planner guy who's very organized and he's a good salesman, right? And so he came with an Excel spreadsheet, charts and graphs, and he had, he had planned out, okay, based on what you're saving for the future now, uh, here's what you have to live on for your retirement. And so if you retire at 65 and you spend this much every year, you'll run out of money when you're 78. And guess what? What if you live till you're 90? What are you going to do? You need to invest more money in the mutual funds that I now want to sell you. Right? That's a good sales pitch. Except for this. What I asked him is, why did you assume that I'm going to retire at 65? Whose assumption is that? It's not my assumption. I won't actually need your money for another 10 years beyond that, so I'm good. Right? There's a whole baseline set of assumptions that capitalism has handed you that say, here's how your life is supposed to work. When you're 65, check it in, go play golf, go somewhere sunny, travel a lot, spend lots of money. Right? You might just need to step back and say, okay, how does the gospel critique those assumptions? How does the gospel maybe give me different parameters by which to make those decisions? Please do not go home and cash out your 401k. That's not what I'm saying, all right? But do question the assumptions of capitalism. Uh, here's the fourth way of living out the gospel in affluent culture that, that really is, is, is the foundational one that lies underneath all of them. Let your life display what you treasure. Your life, the way you live should display what you treasure. In fact, it will. It will display what you treasure. So, so ask the question, man, what, a, 
What is my life declaring and displaying about what I value? And see, if you value the Lord Jesus, and if you value the kingdom of God, and if you value the glory of God, then your life will display things that are commensurate with that and will give an opportunity for people to see a picture of the gospel that you say you believe. So let your life display what you treasure. Here's, here's a painful exercise you might want to do. Uh, go dig out your tax return from this year and just ask, what does this say about what I treasure? Right? Like, what do my charitable giving lines say about what I treasure? What does my income say about what I treasure? That's a challenging exercise. I'll give you another example. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I spent some money on our house, and we invested some dollars in some updates, and one of the things we did was we put in some really nice wood floors and shelled out a, a bit of money to do that. And so as I was writing the check and handing it to the men who installed the wood floors, I was thinking, that is a lot of money that's about to go out the door. And I was standing there in the room with my wife, and I felt this urge rise up in me of, these better be really nice for a long time. Right? Like, these better stay beautiful for a long time. And so I ain't having nobody over here whose kids are dropping something on my floor, and I'm not having anybody who's going to lean back on their chair. Right? Like, I was starting to categorize in my mind what's not going to happen on these wood floors. And you know what my life was displaying at that moment? I don't believe the gospel. What I believe is that my happiness is in how good my floors look. And man, I had to put that to death right away. And so you know what we've done to try to put feet to that? Had a lot of people over to our house. Man, we throw parties, we host missional community. I let kids drop food all over those wood floors and don't even think about it because I wanted to put that to death in my soul. Like, I don't want to be that guy who when people are over at my house, in the back of my mind is going, oh, I think he's leaning back on the chair. That's not the guy whose house you want to go to. That, That values the wrong thing. Right? I want to be the guy who's saying, man, this house belongs to the Lord Jesus and so doggone it. He wants to destroy it. That's his deal. Right? Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to be neglectful and be a bad steward. It just means I have to die to the idolatry of what I'd like to protect and secure based on what my culture values. Let your life display what you treasure. For that to be possible, for, for that to look the way it should... You have to treasure and value Jesus more than you treasure anything else, right? That's the only way that actually works. And so what if you're here this morning and the honest truth is you just don't value Jesus more than other things. You just don't treasure the Lord and his glory as much as you treasure other stuff. Maybe that's the honest truth. Maybe the honest truth for most of us here today is, you know what, I I just don't value Jesus that much. There are other things that have priority in my assessment of what gets value and what I care about. What do I need to do if that's true of me? I simply need to be reminded of the gospel. Romans 5.8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's not your love for him, it's his love for you. That's the transformative thing. 
What, 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 will, what will guard me against the seduction of the prostitute Babylon? What will guard me against that is knowing how much I am loved by my true husband. What great lengths he has gone to to love me, to call me into relationship with him, to provide for my needs. All the good of the gospel, of what God has done for me, is what causes me to treasure Christ above everything else. And, and so if you find yourself this morning confronting honestly, man, I, I don't treasure Christ as much as I need to. I'm prone to the seduction of the world and my culture. The answer is not muster up some more love, you slacker. The answer is remember how much you have been loved. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that while we were Yet in our sin, you loved us and set your son. We thank you that our ability to treasure you and value you as we ought has less to do with our ability to muster up enough love and much more to do with our willingness to rest in your love and to believe the extravagance of the love that you've shown to us. So God, I pray for my friends this morning. I know that we live in the midst of a culture that is preaching sermons at us every day about how we lack and about what we need and about how various products or experiences will fill the gaps in our lives. And I would just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to develop that fairy tale ability to see through all of that, to see the reality that is behind all of that, to recognize that the emperor of capitalism has no clothes, that at the end of the day, all that wealth and all that affluence can secure us nothing that we don't already have in and through the Lord Jesus. And so I pray that we would be a people who live in our culture with a generous open-handedness. That we would not cling to possessions and security and comfort and affluence, but that we would willingly give of what we have, even as you did, so that our lives might display the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.